Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura. Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Law Dean's Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. How can a court wash its hands of 60,000 lives, claiming that's the law based on a basically new and made up doctrine? It does feel like the judges or some justices have failed to consider the weight and the cost of their decisions on human life. That's our guest, Professor Wendy Parmet, an expert on health, disability, and public health law. Mitch, the COVID pandemic really exposed weaknesses in our public health system and also that lack of trust in science and and government came together at the same time. I was taken by surprise by how vehemently people reacted to mandates like wearing a mask or getting a vaccine. And those were intended to protect the public health or the collective good. And it really highlighted for me the tension between individual rights. You can't make me wear a mask. You can't make me get a vaccine. And the collective good, let's take these steps together to protect everyone. Jackie, over 100 years ago in 1905, in Jacobson versus Massachusetts, the United States Supreme Court upheld the Cambridge, Massachusetts Board of Health's authority to require vaccinations during a smallpox epidemic. That sounds familiar. This was the controlling law for over 100 years in the United States. And then COVID-19 collided with the appointment of Amy Comey Barrett to the United States Supreme Court and a 6-3 conservative court directed by what appears to be more religious ideology rather than legal precedent. The change in the Supreme Court's interpretation of public health law has just simply been startling and, in my opinion, alarming. As usual, we've invited someone who knows a lot more than we do. Our guest today is a leading scholar on how the courts have influenced public health in this country. Professor Wendy Parment, an expert on health, disability, and public health law, directs Northeastern Law School's Center for Health Policy and Law. She also holds a joint appointment with Northeastern University's School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs in recognition of her national leadership in interdisciplinary thinking and problem solving on issues related to public health. She's an advocate and a prolific author, and she is here to speak with us about her new book, Constitutional Contagion, COVID, the courts, and public health. Welcome, Wendy. Nice to be with you. Wendy, as I said in the opening, one of the things that was most challenging for me as part of the COVID pandemic is how polarizing the laws that were intended to protect public health became. There was a real battle between people asserting individual rights. I mentioned the right not to get vaccinated and those asserting the need to implement laws for the public good. And you saw a shift in how the Supreme Court resolved those battles. But before we discuss that shift, I want to set down a baseline for our listeners. How did the courts traditionally treat public health laws and regulations? Thanks, Jackie. They traditionally 
for most of our constitutional history, courts tended to be quite differential to public health laws. That doesn't mean they upheld every law. Public health laws, like all laws, have to comply with a whole bunch of legal requirements, and we could discuss those. But deference was the norm. And one way I like to think about it is they cared about the public health outcomes, and they tended to recognize judges did, that they knew less about public health than health officials, and that it wasn't their job to make public health decisions. Again, that doesn't mean that every public health law prevailed or that challenges were not sometimes successful. Indeed, as I discussed in the book, there were times challenges should have been successful but weren't. But public health mattered. It was recognized as an important governmental objective, a key component of the state's police power. And one of the things I talk about in the book is how dramatically that changed in 2020 and the years that followed. And I think it bears emphasis because I feel like it's been lost in our society of late. And you do talk about that in the book quite a bit, that idea of government being organized for general welfare and that government was there to promote and enhance the public good and the public health. That was a founding idea in the Constitution. It feels as if that piece has been lost. I fear that it has. It is right in the Constitution, up front, in the preamble, we the people, in order to promote the general welfare. It's there in the very idea of the state's police power. Now, in the early constitutional years, it was assumed that the states were the parts of government that were primarily entrusted to promote the general welfare and protect health. But it was just taken as a given. And as I talk about in the book, where epidemics were absolutely rampant and could run through cities and kill people with extraordinary ferocity very swiftly. This idea of contagion and that we are all in it together and need to protect one another from contagion was just accepted. That's not to say that every policy wasn't contested. There were deep issues. But the idea that government had a purpose was widely accepted. And over the years, we have lost that. Now, even going beyond the pandemic, we can see the idea that it's important that government not only protect our rights, which is important, but also accomplish things and protect our liberty in ways that require government action, not just its disappearance. That is fading. And along with it, the social contract. Wendy, you identified a number of factors that intersected during COVID. Distrust of the government, distrust in science and experts, and the rise of misinformation. As I mentioned earlier, there was also a dramatic shift in the courts. Rather than courts deferring to experts, they seemed more willing to question and overrule public health experts and the history that you just explained. This seems like a dangerous trend. How do you see this going forward? To go back a second, what you were saying, I do think it was a perfect storm. We have the rise of populism and distrust of expertise and authority. We have social media and its amplification of misinformation and disinformation. We have extreme political polarization, which 
itself abets distrust. People don't trust information that comes from the opposite party. And we have so many other deep, deep divides. In addition, we have a Supreme Court that seems at times, and especially in 2020 and 2021, all too happy to engage in the political and culture wars, invite and enhance the discord and throw aside precedent, become, in a sense, active players in in the discord and discontent. We are deeply imperiled right now, politically, legally, in terms of our public health. And one of the things I try to write about is those are all intertwined. You can't have an illness in your politics without it affecting your health. They are all intertwined. We are going to take a brief break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, Professor Wendy Parmit, author of Constitutional Contagion, COVID, the Courts, and Public Health, will discuss how the Constitution, the Supreme Court, and public health policy intersect. The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertis is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. ProCertis is reshaping online learning. Come check us out at www.procertis.com. The Master of Arts in Law degree from the Colleges of Law was designed to empower working professionals to become innovative problem solvers in careers that intersect with the law. The legal field is more than what happens in a courtroom after all. The Colleges of Law. Learn more at collegesoflaw.edu. Welcome back. We continue our conversation with public health law expert, UCLA professor Wendy Parmet. Our question to her is whether the Supreme Court is allowed to dictate whether the government can mandate or prohibit public health and safety policies, such as mandatory vaccines and masks. When the Supreme Court says governments can't do this, well, they're making up new law. What we have is a dramatic departure from our constitutional tradition that followed some appointments on the Supreme Court during the Trump years, that could change. It's not inevitable. And I think we need to recognize both the danger of the period we are in now, but also its contingency. And from the contingency, I get hope because it is not inevitable. And I think one of the things you do in the book really well is bring all those disparate threads together to show how they all influence public health. One of the things that you just mentioned is the rise of misinformation and disinformation. And we just had a guest on Jeff Kossif, who wrote a book called Liar in a Crowded Theater. He really advocates strongly for First Amendment protections, even for lies and disinformation. Do you have a different position when it comes to disinformation regarding public health issues? Do you think the government does have a place to regulate that? Because the Biden administration recently got their hands slapped for asking social media companies to take down COVID misinformation. 
I think that the government definitely has a role to play. And that case, the Fifth Circuit case, is particularly remarkable because it wasn't even about regulations. It's really saying the government has no role. It can't even advise about disinformation, which is really, really dangerous. These are hard issues. And I am a strong supporter of the First Amendment. But nothing should ever be taken to its extremes. No legal principle. And again, I I like to go back to our constitutional tradition. Commercial speech in particular was not protected until relatively recently in our constitutional history. Even when it was protected, it was protected only partially through something close to intermediate scrutiny until relatively recently. We didn't, for example, have direct-to-consumer advertising for pharmaceuticals until relatively recently. I think it's important to say for people who want to say, well, the First Amendment. Well, we managed to be a democracy in the 1970s, and we didn't think the government didn't have a role to play in some modest regulation of speech that related to health. And what's happening now, and it's similar to what's happening in other areas, is that certain rights are spinning out of control, in a sense, with other values becoming diminished. Holmes said you can't shout, going back to the the title of that book, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. Well, now some people are saying, well, you can. And everyone's to themselves. We should all stop and do our own research and think as individuals about whether or not we want to run out of the theater. The problem, of course, is people get killed in the stampede. That's the contagion. The pure individualism is really in so many situations just not plausible. And so if we're protecting the liberty to speech, absolutely, then we're not protecting the liberty to live. Life and health is part of the general welfare too. These are things that courts understood for a very long time. Courts understood that even if strict scrutiny was applied, Protecting health was a compelling state interest. Now, we have some courts are not so sure about that. And that's a dangerous development in my mind. Wendy, let me follow on that theme of what is the court deciding? On one hand, there's the threshold of scrutiny and whether public health is appropriate. And they do come down on that still to some extent. But what I'd really like to talk about next is that the Supreme Court and the lesser courts appear to be giving more weight to the cost of public health measures imposed on freedom rather than the lives that the measures were designed to save. Is that a fair read on the current court position? And is this more of what we have to look forward to in public health policy? Well, I think it's a very fair read of the current Supreme Court. To be clear, a lot of state courts did not go down this path. But at the federal level, I think it's a fair read. One of the cases that really pushes that point or clarifies that point is NFIB versus Department of Labor, January of 22. This was the case about OSHA's regulation that was going to require large employers either require their employees to be vaccinated or mask and test. And this was during the Omicron outbreak. We were losing enormous numbers of people to COVID every week. The pandemic was by no sense of the imagination over at that time. And the justices did not contest that the regulation would save 60,000 lives. I want to stop a second and say that again. 
60,000 lives. We all stop if one child is killed. This was 60,000 lives of, by the way, of working age people. The court paid no attention to it. The court was silent to that. They talked about the fact that vaccines were a burden. After all, you couldn't be unvaccinated when you left your work. There's some hypothetical violation or no, even a real violation of individual autonomy to require vaccination. But they gave no weight to the other side of the equation. And Justice Breyer in his dissent made this point, and he argued even if OSHA arguably overstepped its authority in granting a preliminary injunction, the court should be thinking about the balance of equities, the threat to being required to be vaccinated or mask and test, right? Of having to wear a mask mattered, but 60,000 lives didn't matter. How can a court just so blithely wash its hands of 60,000 lives, claiming that's the law, ignoring the equities, based on a basically new and made up doctrine? It does feel like the judges or some justices have failed to consider the weight and the cost of their decisions on human life. Just to follow up on that, and this is happening not just in the public health arena, but as you've stated, that idea of individual rights being elevated as opposed to regulating for the public good. Other values, saving lives is getting diminished. But many of the regulations that were implemented during COVID had been implemented during past pandemics, what has changed? I mean, it was interesting to me in the book where you said post-antibiotic, societal understanding of contagion became an individual responsibility rather than a collective one, because it feels like things have changed, not just in the law, but in that social contract that we have set up with each other. Is that fair? Absolutely. And I think public health as a discipline has something to do with that. We have talked for so long about what you can do to protect yourself. Even public health messages, even messages about vaccines are often couched in these very individualistic terms. Here's what you can do. And we have increasingly become a society where we think about health as a matter of individual choice. We could identify that movement on both the left and right side of the political spectrum. It is a part of the larger fraying of the social contract, right, and the fraying of community, which has been happening for a long time in the United States. But we see health in individualistic terms. We could talk about how we spend so much more than other countries on health care because we don't invest in things that keep the community healthy. We invest in getting the best care I can get when I get sick. That's a deeper, deeper trend. It's been going on since the second half of the 20th century. It is aligned with the epidemiological transition where contagion became less salient, where public health and medicine began to focus on lifestyle diseases. And those are in air quotes because, right, are they really individual lifestyle choices or are there social roots to smoking and to diabetes and to COPD? But we focus on them and we call them lifestyle diseases. 
And we've been thinking about it that way for a long time. So it's probably not surprising that when a airborne epidemic arises like COVID, we still latch on to and think about it in very individualistic terms. But I want to add that all of everything I just said is does not stand apart from other trends in our culture that push us towards individualism and other trends in our politics. It's been a long time since Ronald Reagan said the problem is government. So we've been privatizing things for a long time and we have privatized health. We've privatized our understanding of health. And that, I think, frankly, is at the root of why our life expectancy is so much lower than life expectancy in pure nations and why we did so much worse with COVID. We're going to take a brief break from our discussion with Professor Wendy Parment to hear from our sponsors. Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast. An Honorable Profession Profiles the Rising Stars in American Politics. From mayors to attorney generals, An Honorable Profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out An Honorable Profession wherever podcasts are found. Kaplan helps thousands of law students become lawyers every year. Prepare to pass your bar exam with personalized prep that fits how you learn best. Choose from a traditional two-month course, a flexible three-month course, or semester-long prep. And get your personalized study plan, which includes thousands of realistic questions and unlimited essay grading. No one does bar review like Kaplan. Find the bar review that fits you best so you can score your best. Visit captest.com bar. That's K-A-P-Test.com bar. Welcome back. We're talking with public health law expert, Wendy Parment. We're discussing the impact that COVID had on the conflict between mandatory public health policies and individual rights. We have privatized health. We have not invested, and I don't only mean that in an economic sense, but a social and legal and political sense, in the population-wide measures that support healthy populations. Wendy, talking about trends, let me just keep on that theme for a second, and things that appear to be rolled back. I am very concerned about the possible impact on things such as mandatory childhood vaccines. And your book talks about contagion. Well, there's things we've almost eradicated, but not completely. And childhood vaccination is is clearly linked to those successes. How worried should we be that this shift, as you just described, towards individual rights versus the collective good, how worried should we be that these changes are now going to roll back protections such as childhood vaccines? Very worried. Unfortunately, we now have some cases that were decided since my book came out where courts are now for the first time suggesting that state laws that don't allow for religious exemptions for childhood vaccine laws are unconstitutional. Mississippi, which has, you know, on most health criteria, it does not do very well. It's, it's one of our least healthy states, but had very high vaccine rates. And that was one area where Mississippi was a real leader. And they did not allow, because of some other court decisions, religious exemptions for childhood vaccines. A federal court just ordered them to allow for religious exemptions. And I want to say something else about that, which is not most states have allowed for religious exemptions for a long time, 
the problem is not only the existence of religious exemption, it's courts suggesting that the exemptions are constitutionally required and opening the door to constitutional litigation if individuals ex seeking exemptions are not granted it. Again, you open the door to individuals opting out. It's the privatization of the social contract. I think people in public health are rightfully very concerned about what does this mean for measles? We've seen in the last few years some small polio outbreak. Who thought we were going to still have polio? It's deeply troubling because this is part of the social contract. When you start unwinding it and basically allow everybody to be a free rider, one by one, contagion spreads. And this is directly linked to what the courts have done. What is a religious exemption have to do with vaccines and how does that interact with the Constitution? We say it and everybody just says, oh, yes, I should have religious rights. But to vaccines or non-vaccines, without getting too deep in the weeds for our non-constitutional lawyers listening, how does all that connect? Let me just say at the start that although most states allowed individuals to say vaccinating my child violates my faith, it was not constitutionally required. And the law was absolutely clear about that. Absolutely. I mean, if there was anything clear in con law, that's it. Okay. That has changed now. And so now we have court decisions that saying if the state says that everybody must be vaccinated, every child going into school or daycare needs to be vaccinated against mumps, rubella, measles, polio, and the state allows someone not to be exempted if they have a medical contraindication that you have to allow someone to not be vaccinated if they have a religious objection. What the courts are now suggesting is that as long as you allow somebody to not be vaccinated because of their medical contraindication, you have to allow someone to not be vaccinated if it violates their religious belief. Wait a minute. I hate to interrupt, but there's some parallelism there. But constitutionally, those two things aren't connected. It's one thing to say that the government is going to force me to injure myself by a government order. It's another thing to say the government is going to force me to put the population at risk. I've biased that a bit, but you get the point. So what changed during COVID in the judicial decisions of the Supreme Court was this idea that laws that say nothing about religion, that require everyone to be vaccinated, or require everybody to stop their car at the stop sign, or require every building to have a smoke detector. Just day-to-day -day public health laws may violate the free exercise clause of the Constitution if exemptions are allowed for other reasons that, that a court finds comparable. And the problem is, how do we know if medical exemptions are comparable to religious exemptions? And basically, the court is saying, got to be deferential to religion when we make that decision and we don't look at public health evidence. And so what you're seeing is the court saying that the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, religious liberty, allows individuals to opt out of generally applicable laws. This was a prospect, by the way, that terrified Justice Scalia. But that's where we've gone now. It was 
it clear when the court issued its COVID decisions that it was inviting a attack on childhood vaccines. And we've now seen that. We've seen courts flip in the last year or two about childhood vaccines. And frankly, it's hard to imagine where this ends. The problem now is that the court has given this invitation to opt out in a climate of such disinformation and political polarization that you have so many people who are now anti-vaccine. We are going to take our final break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we'll continue our discussion with Professor Wendy Parmet about the role that religious exemptions are going to play in the application of future public health laws and policy. San Luis Obispo College of Law offers on-site and hybrid online evening classes that provide you the option to continue working while attending law school. To learn more about their accredited degree programs or to apply for their next term, go to slowlaw.org. That's S-L-O-Law.org. Your community, your law school, your future. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Visit our website, trellis.law. Welcome back. The current Supreme Court appears to be giving unique new constitutional privileges to religious exemptions in state and federal health and safety laws. We continue our conversation with Professor Wendy Parmet about whether the current Supreme Court is inflecting religious ideology into public health laws and regulations. I just want to key in on something that you are talking about in part, which is judicial humility. Right now we have judges who are making decisions that are contrary to what public health officials think are in the best interest of the public. And we're seeing that happen not just during the COVID pandemic, but in other cases as well. We recently had a Texas judge question the FDA's decision regarding the abortion pill 20, 25 years after it had been issued. We've got the Supreme Court starting to question whether or not deference should be given to experts that are in administrative agencies and the decisions they make. So one of the things that it seems it's hard to do is to put the genie back in the bottle. How do we roll back or how do we get back to that balance of judicial humility and, and expertise? How do we get put the genie back in the bottle? I think part of the problem is within the legal profession. All of us in the legal profession need to be a little bit more humble and to be a little bit more respectful of where our own expertise lies and where it is not. Lawyers are very good at believing they're the smartest folks in the room and they know everything. And judges, of course, think they're the smartest lawyers, but we're not. We need as lawyers, as a profession, to change our professional perspective, to change our professional norms, which I think become amplified in the judiciary. I agree 100% with your comments about the role of lawyers, that the role we can play, helping people better understand these issues. 
to what extent are we somewhat frozen in time as long as we have a current Supreme Court that appears well invested in these theories that give individual rights over the, the common good, a cost over lives saved. We have a 6-3 conservative court that I also believe, as I mentioned in the outset, that there's some religious ideology that's creeping in over legal precedent. Are we somewhat frozen in time as long as we have the Supreme Court sitting as an umbrella over these philosophies? Somewhat frozen, but we're not paralyzed. For one thing, it's important not to forget the state courts. What's happening at the state court level affects a lot of people's lives. We shouldn't forget that. For another thing, last year's Supreme Court term showed us and that although this current majority is perhaps on a mission, they're not completely uninfluenced by public events. I think we saw a modulation last term, certainly not a reversal of the trends, but they were going to dismantling precedent at 95 miles an hour in 21 and 22. I think last year they, they went down to back down to 50 miles an hour. There was a modulation, and we see this even potentially now. They are not totally immune from criticism. That said, I totally agree with you that there is a lot of type of religious ideology going on, and what happens in the next presidential election is going to matter when we do try to leave ourselves and listeners with a hopeful note and also a way that we can engage with the issue, what steps we can take as individuals to help in this public health issue. And I'm, I'm wondering, what's the way forward and what can we do to push us in that direction? I think for one thing, we all need to start thinking about and talking about health in a different way, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our colleagues, in our public writings. People on all sides of the political spectrum need to get off of the bandwagon of thinking about everything as individualistic ways. Whether we're talking about abortion, is it individual choice, or is it about reproductive health and justice? We need to get off that individualism bandwagon because it is tearing the country apart. We need to understand and recognize that our health is more dependent on the health of our neighbors and the health of other communities who may be disproportionately affected. The health of everyone in this country is not what it should be. We need, as lawyers, to be a little bit more humble, and we need to recognize that there's a political component to this. There's no magic answer to this, unfortunately. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and really enjoyed talking with you today. Wendy, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Mitch, when I read Wendy's book, it really helped me articulate the struggle that I've been having between that idea of the collective good and the social contract and the rise of 
this idea of individual rights triumphing over all. And it was highlighted during the pandemic that that had receded in our society to such an alarming rate that people were not able to think about their neighbor or think about someone who might have a disability and be immunocompromised and were really focused on what they saw as rights and how the government couldn't infringe on them. I just felt sad. And her book really brought to light the historical move towards that and how the courts have contributed to it. Jackie, I I agree with you, as I frequently do on these type of, of social legal issues. One of the things Wendy helps us think about is that despite the track we're on with the Supreme Court and the politics of this individual over the common good, the day-to-day behavior in so many examples is positive. It is for the common good. We share these values. We share these purposes. But when you start politicizing public health, among other things, you then see these discussions that, that even have gotten violent. And yet it isn't really changing, for the most part, our behavior to each other in the community, but it's absolutely changing our behavior towards the law. And I see this in the courts as well as in the political dialogue. So I'm not sure what we do with that, but it does give me the foundation of hope that at the end of the day, we do believe in the common good and we we have examples of it every single day that should make us feel positive. Although I then look at the next decision by the Supreme Court and some of that hope is crushed a little bit. Oh, Mitch, you were almost there. I was going to say, Mitch, you took me by surprise. You're ending on a positive note. That's so unlike you. And then you went there. Despite decisions by the court, court goes through cycles as well. So if the public good is essential to our survival, we can make changes politically to see that reflected in our politics. And ultimately, we can make changes to see that reflected in the courts as well. Once again, I want to thank everyone who joined us today on Sidebar. And as always, Mitch and I would love to know what's on your mind. You can reach us at sidebarmedia.org. Sidebar would not be possible without our producer, David Eakin, who also composes and performs all of the Sidebar music. Thank you also to GoGo Zoger, who manages Sidebar's marketing and social media. Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities. For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.